evening, and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York on WGBB here in Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here. I'm taking you through the first hour, the fourth day of February 2024, in case you just woke up. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is across the way taking care of all things technical. We have a fine show planned for you tonight. Up first, we have a real treat for you. We'll welcome in the great fullback for some great Miami Dolphins teams, the immortal Hall of Famer, Larry Zonka, will join us. And in the second half, we hope to speak to former great three-point shooter for the New York Knicks, Trent Tucker. So sit back, relax, get a blanket, get comfortable, enjoy Sports Talk New York tonight on GBB. Great Sports Talk with some great people up ahead. As always, before we begin, I invite you to follow us on social media. You can follow me on social media. The Talk of New York Sports is the name of the page. You'll find sports information, show information, so much more, so stop by, take a look. You can also follow us on X at Sports Talk New York. You can follow me on X at B. Donahue. WGBB and all past shows can be heard on our website at www.sportstalknewyork.com. You can catch up anytime you want. Well, our first guest, mostly remembered for his success during his tenure with the Dolphins, which included being a member of their 17-0 perfect season in 1972, winning Super Bowl championships in 72 and 73, uh, the latter which he was named the Super Bowl MVP. He ran for 145 yards in that game. Played his college ball up at Syracuse, where his number is retired, and is one of only three Dolphins to receive the number of retirement. He was elected to the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 1987, and he will be bringing out the Lombardi Trophy to be presented to the winner next weekend at the Super Bowl. Welcome to Sports Talk New York, Larry Zonka. Larry, good evening. Good evening, Bill. Nice to talk to you. Quite an introduction. I've forgotten some of that. <laughs> yeah. Now, I believe uh, in uh, giving credit where credit is due, Larry, and you certainly have credit due. That is for sure. And uh, before we get, get going, Larry, I want to mention your book, uh, Head On. Some great stories. It's a great read, folks. Uh, it was written in 2022, but still quite re- relevant. It's out there. Please check it out on Amazon, and we'll get back to talking about the book a little later. But you are from the Akron suburb of Stowe, Ohio, Gary. Excuse me. Yeah, Stowe, Ohio. I'm a Stowe, Ohio bulldog. Who were your sports heroes at the time, Larry? Oh, Jim Brown. You know, far away with the Cleveland Browns. I was just, uh, you know, Akron's only... uh, just eight miles from Stowe, the town I grew up in, and uh, just probably 25 miles from Cleveland. So couldn't afford the tickets to get into the Cleveland Stadium to watch the, the Browns play, but uh, got taken up there gratis once, and then we snuck in a couple other times. Sure, yeah. <laughs> well, ordinary little farm kids, we found a way in. You know, the delivery guys were going in. We rode in with them, and... and uh, Kind of hit up in the upper deck and got to watch the football game. Yeah. A real treat. Who didn't sneak into the ballpark when they were younger? That's for sure. 
Now, you played defensive end on your high school team, and you happened uh, on to becoming a running back by accident. Well, the running back that we had got hurt, so uh, they needed somebody to block for the great halfback we had in high school, so I kind of meandered over there and tried to fill in, and it, uh, lo and behold, I, I didn't do that great a job because uh, <laughs> the running back got hurt, so they ended up handing me the ball. So, right. Uh, in the, in the long run, it worked out, but it was uh, it was not necessarily a thing by design. But uh, being quick enough, uh, I, sh- I don't I say not fast enough, but quick enough. Uh, it's more yeah. important for a power runner, short term power runner, to be quick than it is fast. Now you were recruited, Larry, by Clemson, Ohio, Vanderbilt, and Syracuse. Why did you choose SU? Well, a fellow named Ben Schwartzwalder, you know, he had quite a, a record, a war record. He was a commander, jumped in the black forest, led men on nearly what was considered almost a suicide squad situation and jumped into the black forest, created a diversion during the uh, Normandy landing, I believe. And he, he and about half his men walked out of there. That's a real tribute. So he was a guy, you know, grit and destiny. And he uh, he came became a head coach at Syracuse, and he recruited me as a defensive end. But uh, when I said to him I would like to go to Syracuse with one stipulation, and he of course raised his eyebrows and looked over his glasses <laughs> and said, "What's that?" And I said that I would like to have an opportunity to play fullback mm-hmm. uh, at Syracuse. And he said uh, he thought a moment. He didn't snap an answer right away. Uh, Woody Hayes, I asked the same thing. I asked several head coaches at the time the same thing. And they didn't, they gave me answers that weren't uh, a little too quick and a little too uh, insincere, in yeah. my opinion. But when Schwarzwalder stopped and took several minutes and stared at me and looked over his glasses and said, You have my word. Mm-hmm. I shook his hand and I believed him. And I, and I did get that opportunity as a freshman. And of course, it worked out. Yeah, now, this was pre-Carrier Dome, folks, so you played in some garbage up there. I'm sure, Larry, right? <laughs> we played in the old Archibald, crumbling Archibald Stadium. Yeah. It, uh, you had to be careful because sometimes the concrete would fall down. Oh, man. <laughs> it was wild. But at the same time, uh, what a great school to play for and what a great uh, great. Linnies that was there at Syracuse and be hooked up with a school that had the likes of Floyd Little, Ernie Davis, and Jim Brown was quite an honor to be a running back there. Right. And then for a coach like that, uh, it was an honor and it was only 300 miles from home. So, you know, occasionally I get hiked and I got to go home back home. Yeah, it's quite a legacy up there, SU has. That, that is definitely true. We're speaking to Larry Zonka tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, you were the number one pick by the Miami Dolphins who were in the AFL at that time. Did you, uh, Who were you drafted by in the NFL, uh, Larry? Well, I was technically, that was after the merger, so I, I was only drafted. To, All right. You know, I drafted by a Canadian team as well, but that was in 1968, and I think I uh, started doing that in 67 or 66. So right. I wasn't really drafted by two teams. Uh, the AFL and the NFL hadn't yet merged. It hadn't become official. They hadn't changed into the American Conference and the National Conference yet. But they had started observing a common draft, so I was just drafted by the Dolphins. Now, I had read 
Larry, that uh, Shula came in, literally had to teach you how to run with the football. And, uh, he, is that true? Well, that might be a little bit of an overexaggeration. Okay. But I, I think that uh, I had a pretty good idea how to run with a football. Uh-huh. He uh, taught me how not to get hurt when I was running with a football. You know, how to uh, – we, we went over some fine points. I would never say that uh, I wasn't a much more refined running back after uh, being coached by Coach Shula. Right. Now – uh, you never missed a game in your first four years. Uh, what can you attribute that to? Well, I think the conditioning program that was outlined, I think the uh, first couple of years I was pretty healthy right out of college. But, it, you know, under Shula, um, let me tell you something. Everyone on the team, even the trainers, were in good shape. Uh, <laughs> everyone participated in the workouts, and he had it documented. He was a great believer in, in uh, weight observation and, uh, you know, uh, a lot of running. When he got there, this gives you an idea. We had 96-degree heat in South Florida. We were hoping we were going to have training camp over in California or something like that. But right. instead, he moved it right to Boca Raton, Florida or to uh western part of uh Miami there. Uh moved it from Boca Raton down to uh, uh Biscayne College in in North Miami. And my goodness, we had ninety you know, it was nothing unusual at all to have ninety plus degree heat for right. double sessions during August in those dog days in late July. And he said we would become uh, accustomed to the heat and make it our friend and use it as a weapon. And uh, when he was in the meeting saying that, I popped off, which I was famous for, <laughs> and uh, said, uh, you mean if we live? And he said, my <laughs> office after the meeting. Oh. And, and we had a uh, we had a head-to-head. You know, I didn't like the way he uh, decided weights by, you know, yeah. just off the top of his head. And I uh, challenged that a little bit. He brought a... Uh, he brought several specialists in, doctors that, that uh, were specialists in that category of uh, height-weight ratio of muscle to fat, and uh, actually measured it. Yeah. And I had the second lowest fat ratio on the team other than Lloyd Mufford, a cornerback that weighed 180 pounds. Mm-hmm. So uh, That's pretty I good. proved my point, and he said uh, instead of two – 235 will give you two more pounds and let you weigh it at 237, which wasn't worth all the trouble, but there it was. That's yeah. how Shula worked. So you, you were 6'3", and, and we'll, we'll say 237, Larry. You were one of the biggest backs uh, in in the league at, at that size, but uh, you, they, com- they compared you to Bronco Nagurski. Now, folks, you, know, you can Google Bronco Nagurski. He was one of the pioneers. And you had the ability, Larry, to drag a guy another couple of yards to, uh, to uh, a better gain. Well, that head-on kind of collision was made famous by Bronco Nagurski, correct. Mm-hmm. And I followed down that lane. But at the same time, that's what Shula and you know looked into and sat. And when he realized what he had with my with the abilities I had and the abilities of the offensive lineman, Kuchenberg, Langer, uh, Larry Little, you know, Hall of Famers and Hall of Fame candidates right. later on. At that time, he realized that he could, with uh, Monty Clark, an assistant coach who was an offensive lineman for Jimmy Brown at the Cleveland Browns when he played, was our offensive line coach. 
that magic of those personalities put together was realized by Shula. And that's the biggest thing is for the head coach to realize that, that that's there. Then we rehearsed that. And it wasn't just brutal head-on running. You know, yeah, I, I was brutal when I was hitting one of the defensive backs. Mm-hmm. But, you know, you don't do that to Joe Green. You don't do that to Bob <laughs> Lilly. You don't do that to people like that. Right. You, you've got to have those people in front of you timed up and all on the same page. There has to be an intellectual understanding of what you're facing and how to operate against it. No matter how big and bad you are, you still need that timing and that methodology in order to do it. With those people, coached by uh, Coach Clark and Coach Shula, we put that together where we anticipated each other's moves, and that worked. And those fellas did as much to advance that football as I did. And I, But together, we made it uh, uh, something that was consistent. And when you have that consistent ball control, you know that. You know that from your career watching watching sports and seeing. When you have ball control where you can pretty much dictate up to one to three yards at your will, now you've got some control, and that's what we had. Very good description, Larry. Yeah, I agree with that 100%. Uh, here's another story I came up with, uh, Larry. You might be the only running back to receive a personal foul for unnecessary roughness while running the ball. <laughs> Do you remember that? Oh, yeah, I remember that. It was, it's a long story, but there was a defensive <laughs> back, and I won't mention his name because that's uh, long been, you know, that's, that's water over the dam. But it was in a Buffalo game, and I, uh, there was some late hitting going on, and I had an opportunity going out of bounds, uh, uh, where he came in and had, I saw an opportunity where I could return the favor that he had done to me a couple times, so I did. Right. And I, with a nice right uppercut instead of a stiff arm, I gave him an uppercut, and it uh, it worked. <laughs> but yeah. Unfortunately, the, the ref saw it. The funny thing about it is I went out of bounds, and Coach Shula was right there, and he loved to catch you coming out of bounds. He, loved, <laughs> he was so involved in the game that he'd just jump right in the middle of the action sometimes coming out of bounds. And uh, he grabbed me by the shoulders and was saw the hit, saw me punch the guy, and he was going great hit. About that time, the flag hit my my left shoulder. Coach Shula looked at looked at the flagman, looked back at me, and said, "You dumbass, O.B." I said, "Coach, get off me." <laughs> <laughs> he went from very happy to not too happy about a fifteen yard penalty. <laughs> yeah, I can see that definitely now. There was a, a close game against the Vikings in, in this, the magic season of 1972. You got hit in the back by, by the linebacker, and then we won't ne- mention his name either because that's water over the dam. Uh, the tackle was, was really so ugly that uh, Johnny Carson showed it on The Tonight Show. Do you, do you, oh, yeah. do you know that right. one? Yeah, oh, yeah. And I'll mention his name. That was a legal hit then. That would be targeting today, but that, that was not considered targeting then. His name is Roy Winston. He's right. a great, great linebacker from Minnesota. And he, he did his job, and he did it well, but he knocked himself out and put me out of the game as well. And I still think of him. Roy's passed away now, and God rest his soul. He was a good competitor and a good man. But I uh, sometimes I still think of him and, and kind of grit my teeth when I stand up because L4 and L5 have never aligned exactly right ever since I met Roy Winston that day. I know the feeling, Larry. I know that feeling. Uh, Monty Clark, a great quote. Monty Clark was asked about 
your running style. And he said, when Zonka goes on safari, the lions roll up their windows. (laughs) (laughs) Monty Clark, for an offensive lineman who blocked for Jim Brown. Think about that. At the Cleveland Browns, Ernie Davis, Jim Brown, you know, Floyd Little, great, great running backs that uh, all went through uh, uh, Syracuse, several of which ended up at the Cleveland Browns. But that guy, what what a great, he was a great offensive line coach. Now, he left us after a couple, three years and went on to be a head coach and did very well. But he he could put together and make sense out of a, a power running game, given the right people and the right intellect of those people, and the willingness to learn, uh, like nobody else ever I, I had ever seen. And he really did a job for us. And uh, well, he's the he's the guy that had a lot to do with that perfect season that we had. Well said. Yes, I agree with that too, Larry. Now, you played with some great. Uh, guys in the backfield. You played with Mercury Morris and, of course, the great Jim Kick. Tell us a little bit about playing with those two guys. Those two guys were, well, they constituted the personality, if you will, particularly on offense of that 72 team. The willingness, two running backs that were both stars, you can't argue with that, Both both men had their, you know, they're first-team guys, but they're sharing a position. Now, that would destroy the relationship with a lot of uh, a lot of folks. Instead, they were both intelligent enough to realize that they could both help the teams in different capacities, and they were willing to switch in and out and actually slap hands going in and out. And that was before that, that, there was that much substitution. Now, those were the early years when that first started. And it was still, you know, there was first-team guys and second-team guys and a, and a great distinction between that. But those two transcended that and made, instead of making enemies out of each other, they made even closer friends. And that added something special to that 72 team. That was part of the magic that gave us a, just that little bit of edge that Shula talked about, the winning edge. That's what he called it. And that was one, that those two fellows personified that that distinct term, the winning edge. Instead of being enemies and vying over more playing time for, for themselves each in a selfish manner, they decided that they would get along because they could both help the team in their own capacities, and they realized that, and the team was more important than either of those individuals, which they realized. Now, think about that. That's a great, That's a, that was a start of something great right there. Right. Definitely, yeah. Uh, Coach Shula, Put that idea in the guy's head, and uh, going seventeen and zero is not easy, folks. Uh, no one's done it since. And uh, having the guys with the mindset that Coach Shula uh, spoke to them about, and what Larry's talking about now, really had a lot to do with that. Now, Larry Zonka, folks, was not not only a great football player, but he was an actor as well. And. When we- <laughs> Well, I want to, yeah, we're going to talk a little bit about Larry Zonka and the Chocolate Factory, folks. How did that, how'd you get involved with that, Larry? Well, I had an agent that had a sense of humor and uh, (laughs) things things worked out. I met Burt Reynolds and Steve, you know, the fellow that played the $6 million man. I I had uh, made acquaintances with a lot of folks out there through Dinosaur and a couple other people that I had met along the route. And, and uh, 
it Johnny Carson, some of those. They, and I, I took a, a swing at it. I, I'm not really much of an actor, and uh, I never <laughs> aspired to go that. It was kind of fun to do some small appearances and and small uh, parts and 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 experiment with it. But I I really loved. Uh, the North going to Alaska and, and that was calling to me and I was out of pro ball and I just decided to heck with acting. I'm going to go up and try my hand at uh, being around in the, in the North in Alaska and maybe we can get some kind of TV series going and that's what happened. Right. And uh, leave the stage to the actors because I, I know I've seen uh, Riggins on, on the stage and he should stick to pro football as well. <laughs> You know, it's just something that's not. But you, that, 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 the show was well received, Larry. No, you're right. I know you're right when you say that about me because I wasn't a very good actor at all. It was kind of, you know, it was. To be quite frank with you, acting takes a, a great tenacity and a great patience, and I just I didn't have it. And I was the North Woods was calling to me all my life. I wanted to go up there and be there, and it was right after football, and I, you know, pushed it back because of football. And uh, I talk about it in the book. I talk a great deal about, uh, you know, just longing to go. I as a, as a kid in junior high, I thought about trying to hitchhike to Alaska. You know, that's how crazy I was about trying to get up there. And uh, finally it came about after pro football where I had an opportunity to go up, and then we did some hunting and fishing and scouted around and decided that uh, maybe we could push it, put it together a series, and sure enough we did, and we had the North to Alaska show for about, 10, 12 years. Yeah, that worked out great. What made you want to write the book finally, uh, Larry? Audrey Bradshaw, the girl that I live with. Uh-huh. She, uh, she was after me uh, constantly, and finally uh, she said, it's time. And uh, I argued with her a little bit, but then we finally sat down and started to do some notes. And over the years, we had uh, talked about it, and she had heard so many of the stories that she was, uh, well, she was instrumental in doing it, you know, absolutely getting me out of the rocker and on the phone and talking <laughs> to some people and getting starts getting it written down. Well, that's what they say, they say, Larry, behind every great man, right? Oh, absolutely. It's yeah. no, not a question. <laughs> you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm motivated to tell stories, but I'm not motivated to write them down, and certainly not to, to remember every detail you know, to go over them several, you know, three, four, 34, 35 times uh, with a fellow and really get it written down correctly, uh, that's kind of an art form in itself. And it's something I wasn't really uh, motivated to do until I got into it. And she was smart enough and knew how to pull the right change to get me to, to get into it. Smart. Yeah, the book is great, folks. Head on. You can find it on Amazon. The color is cool. Oh, the cover is cool. You like it very much. One one question I want to ask you before we go, Larry. You were on the field. People may not remember this, but Larry Zonka was a New York Giant. And uh, I remember I was a sophomore at the State University of New York at Oswego. We were watching the Giant game one Sunday, and the miracle at the Meadowlands, folks. It, it, you should Google that and find out what happened. What were your thoughts on that play, Larry? If I'd have got it, I'd have hung on to it. <laughs> I lost it once in the Super Bowl six or Super Bowl five to uh, uh, Bob Lilly. 
a big fella that, uh, of course, when I met Bob Lilly, I never had anyone pick me up by the head before. That was, uh, oh man, it was an interesting <laughs> affair. And he, you know, he took the ball from me and I, I should have had it. I didn't get it quite well enough on the handoff, but I still should have maintained control of it, but I didn't. And, uh, he knocked it away from me. And the Meadowlands thing, I don't think I ever got it, but we'd have to go back and look at the tape. But that was just one of those things. We're yeah. trying to run out the clock, and we uh, called a safe playoff tackle, but it, uh, we got a bad snap from center. There was a miscommunication between the center and the quarterback, and that uh, messed up the handoff. And the next thing we know, the game got turned around. And, and Not folks, a very great memory. Thanks for bringing it up, though. <laughs> no, no worries, Larry. And the uh, the irony of the situation, folks, is the guy who picked up the the fumble uh, was Herman Edwards, who went on to coach the New York Jets a few years ago. You may remember Herman, and uh, he was involved in that play as well. So, what are you involved in right now, Larry? I'm going up to the Super Bowl to. Uh celebrate the 50-year anniversary of being the MVP and right. hand out the uh, Lombardi Trophy to the winner of the Super Bowl, or carry it out to the commissioner anyway, who's going to deliver it. I'm just I'm having a little problem thinking about that, about giving that trophy to the commissioner after I carry it out there. It's, it's going to be hard to turn loose of that. Yeah, no, you, you're used to carrying it so many times, Larry. To give it up is not, not like you. No, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> but to, But we will look for that. Folks, uh, you've heard Larry talk about he will be giving the Lombardi Trophy to the winner next Sunday at the, the Super Bowl. And uh, we'll certainly look for you, Larry. And I thank you. Thank you and Audrey uh, for setting this up. And uh, we're grateful for you to uh, okay. spend, spend a few moments with out of your Sunday night. It's been an honor and a pleasure. The book, again, folks, is titled Head On. Larry Zonka, look for it, read it, live it. And, again, thank you very much, Larry. All right, Bill. See you later. That is Larry Zonka, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we will welcome in Trent Tucker, former New York Nick, hopefully. Uh, If not, stick around. Listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 12:40 a.m. Or listen live online at WGBBRadio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, folks. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, welcome back to Sports Talk New York here on WGBB on a chilly Wednesday evening. Sorry, no. It is a Sunday evening here. Uh, on Long Island. Uh, we'll keep going. Trent Tucker is unavailable at the moment. We're trying to uh, reach him, but I haven't heard from him all day, so I don't think uh, it's going to happen. But in the meantime, I'd like to speak to you about uh, a great baseball 
uh, piece of lore. What it is is Casey at the Bat. Now, I believe it it was uh, 1893 uh, when it was first brought onto the radio, but uh, 1888. Uh, the mock heroic poem written in 19, in 1888 by Ernest Thayer, uh, famous writer. He was first published anonymously in the San Francisco Examiner. Then it was called the Daily Examiner. On June 3rd, 1888, he used a pen name called Finn based on Ernest's college name Finney. Oh, we have Kurt. Uh, we have Trent Tucker on the line. Let me get back. Hello, Kurt. I mean, Trent. I'm sorry. I'm having a bad night, Trent. I'm sorry. <laughs> you there, Trent? Hey, Bear. How you doing? Ah, oh, we're doing wonderful. I'm having a rough night with names here tonight. I, I think uh, the uh, my age is setting in now. Uh, uh, now you're, you're still good. <laughs> <laughs> now, Trent, uh, you went to the University of Minnesota. Uh, Big Ten Conference champion with the Golden Gophers. Who were your, your uh, sports heroes when you were younger? My sports heroes are the two guys that, um, well, for one, I grew up in the Ali and, and Joe Frazier and Howard Cosell era. Ah, yeah. Me too. Right. I think we're the same age, so it's the same, uh, yeah. same stuff. Yeah, so in that time, the, the, two, the two major stars that I saw in the sports world were Muhammad Ali and Howard Cosell, you know, because back in that, at that time, you know, you could only get three stations, ABC, NBC, and CBS. Right. We didn't have the, we the multiple stations they have today. And every Saturday afternoon, why we were sports with Chris Shanker, I would see Howard Cosell and Muhammad Ali. Right. Yeah, it's funny. We get to talk to Colin Cosell. He is the public address announcer at City Field for the New York Mets. And I'll have him on the program every once in a while. And it's great to reminisce about his grandfather, Howard, and, and just the amazing man that he was. Uh, it, it was really tremendous. Now, now uh, Trent, you're the sixth overall pick in the 1982 NBA draft. Uh, you go to the New York Knickerbockers. Now, uh, the whole three-point thing, I want to talk about that. Did that come from you watching ABA games, perhaps, uh, when you were a kid? No, I was always a long-range shooter. Oh, all right. Even, even when I was a young kid, grew up in Flint, Michigan, and, and you know, my the major part of my game was that I had the ability to shoot from the outside, and that just followed me throughout my entire career. And when the Knicks drafted me back in 1982, you know, I was at that time considered the best shooter in the draft. Mm-hmm. And before we made the trade, Michael Ray Richardson was the starting point guard. And But I would have been a perfect fit for him because with his ability to penetrate and draw the defense and kick out, it would have been, you know, the, the perfect tandem, you know, with a penetrating point guard and a catch-and-shoot guy. But he got traded. For Bernard King, right, and now you know Bernard King comes in. He's a wonderful offensive talent. So how the offense may have been prepared to be structured when I first got drafted, Trent changed dramatically because now when you have this wonderful talent like Bernard King, you have to make him the focal point of the offense. Right, he uh, more or less took the spotlight. The, the great Hall yeah. of Famer Bernard King, understandable, understandable. I, I was thinking that you might have gotten. Uh, 
caught up in as we did when we were kids by the ABA with the red, white, and blue ball, the uh, the three point shot, the run and gun, uh, the Florida Floridian cheerleaders on the sideline. Yeah, but, <laughs> but that's that. Now, on November thirtieth, nineteen eighty two, it was your NBA debut. You outscored the Utah Jazz in the third quarter, seventeen to eleven. Do you remember that? I remember that, yeah. What a game. Uh, what happened? Did, did they not play defense or what? You know, every, every once in a while, you know, uh, when you're a shooter, you know, you have those moments. And and when you get into a good rhythm, all of a sudden now the, the basket look as, looks as big as the Pacific Ocean. Right, and, and you can't miss and you're actually throwing a golf ball into the Pacific Ocean. <laughs> and, my teammates, and my teammates were finding me. They were setting good screens. I was able, you know, to find the, the space on the floor to get good looks at the basket. And when you get that type of rhythm going, you know, those nights don't come often. But when they do come, you know, they're fun to be a part of. I can imagine, Trent. Yeah, I can imagine. Trent Tucker with us tonight on Sports Talk New York. Now, you were one of the earliest guys to start shooting the three-pointer uh, do you remember the uh, the, the uh, first three point shootout? I think it was 1986. Yeah, 8637 in, uh, in Dallas, Texas. Yeah. Yeah, and you went to the semifinals, and uh, two guys outlasted you, Craig Hodges, and of course, a, a guy who could shoot threes all day long, Larry Bird. <laughs> yeah, that's true. He would just hang back and throw it up, and. Uh, and find the basket, like you said, throwing a golf ball into the Pacific Ocean. Now, you you played nine years here. How did you like your stay with the Knicks? I, it was great. I thought that once I got past year seven that I was going to retire the New York Knicks. Mm-hmm. And all players who come into the league, they're hoping that they can stay with that one team if they're able to have a long career and retire there. But it's, it's very rare for a player to, to stay with one team and retire. And But I had a really long run with the New York Knicks. I really enjoyed playing in Madison Square Garden. I enjoyed being a part of the New York City uh, atmosphere and getting the chance to be a part of that community for so long. It allowed me to have stability. And most players who come into the league, they don't have an opportunity to build that stability. And I was a very fortunate guy to have that chance to do that. Yeah, it is truly the mecca of basketball, isn't it, the Garden? No, it's the best place to be. And when I was drafted back in 1982, there was only 23 teams in the league. And you're right. talking about 12 players per team. And to be one of the players to have a chance to play in New York City and in Madison Square Garden with the bright lights, it was a dream come true. Yeah, I can imagine that definitely, Trent. Now, you went to San Antonio for for uh, one season with the Spurs. Then you joined the Bulls. Now, how was it playing with the Bulls? It was fantastic. You know, being the adversary for so many years, all of a sudden now you find yourself in a situation where you're playing against a team that you competed against so much for over the years, and now you have to have to adjust to how they play. They have to learn to trust you. You have to learn to trust them. So it's a process. It takes time to fit in, to be a part of their culture. 
But when you have a chance to see Michael Jordan up close every day, we all knew how great he was as a basketball player when we had to compete against him. But now you're going to see him every single day in practice on how he prepares himself for practice and for games and how mentally tough and how strong he is and how hard he works. And he demands his teammates you know, not to be Michael Jordan, but to work as hard as what they're supposed to do to help the team. It was a great run for me. It was a wonderful way for me to end my career. And also to prove that I was I was mentally strong enough, you know, to do some of the things to help a team win the championship. Yeah, that that's a great way to look at it, Trent. Trent Tucker's with us tonight on Sports Talk New York. Uh you got your ring too from playing with the Bulls. Right. Yeah, so that's not too bad. That's a wonderful ride. And you know, you have to be fortunate enough as a player to be on a team, you know, that is good enough to contend for a championship. And there are so many wonderful players, you know, throughout the history of the NBA who were great talents. They never got that chance because their teams weren't good enough to compete come playoff time. But when you're playing with perhaps the greatest basketball player in, in the history of the game, there's pressure every night to be at your best, and you have to work hard every single day. It's required to make sure you know, that you are sharp and you're working on your skill and you're working on the two things or the three things that you're supposed to do on a daily basis to help yourself to become better so that your team can become better. A lot of players don't have the patience to do that. And it's, uh, it's doing it every single day over and over and over and over again. And you can't get bored with the process because mm-hmm. once you get bored with the process, then that's the wrong place for you to be. No, a lot, a lot of patience, a lot of discipline. That's true, Trent. Now, let's talk about the Trent Tucker rule. Now, who folks uh, who may not be familiar with the Trent Tucker rule, you can Google that and see exactly what it is. Do you remember the play when they instituted that, Trent? I, re- I remember the play like it was yesterday. <laughs> 19 January 15th of the Mad Day, Day, Mad, Mad Day game in Madison Square Garden on MLK Day. Uh-huh. It was the first year that they had gone to 10th to 2nd on the game clock and the shot clock. And when we got the ball with one-tenth of a second left, we called that final timeout. And the play was designed for Patrick Jones to fake up and go to the front of, uh, to the front of the rim for a lob pass. I was supposed to go from the left baseline to the right, base, to the right baseline to empty out the backside and to give Patrick, you know, the space to go to the front of the rim. Right. Michael Jordan was guarding me at the time. We played the Chicago Bulls. He read the play, so he took he took he, he he took that option away. We didn't have a second option, so I improvised and went and went along the baseline up the sideline. I knew Mark Jackson was up against the five second count. I ran in front of him. He gave me a little flip pass. I turned and shot the ball as quickly as I could. And on that day, a shot went in to give the Knicks a chance to win a basketball game. Right. And the problem uh, really started when it was after the game. Phil Jackson, uh, he, he was very vociferously complaining uh, following the game, and he wanted the NBA to establish a rule that states that three-tenths of a second needs to be on the clock in order for a player to go get off a shot. Inside a point three seconds, only a tip in, 
or a high lob would count. Now, that changed the game a little bit. Now, you played for Phil, didn't you? I did. Now, now, uh, how was he as a coach? Phil was a great coach. Yeah, he was a veterans coach. Yeah. And Phil was wonderful, wonderful to play for. He expected you to to know your job, and he expected you to have an opportunity to execute when you're on the floor. But his main thing was that he wanted he wanted guys to be able to function under pressure. To win a championship, you know that the pressure is going to be high every night because you're going to get the best of the best for every team you play against. And when you go deep into a playoff run with a chance to win a championship, the pressure is even greater. One mistake here or there you know, can can be the difference between losing the championship or winning the championship. And he wanted players who were not afraid to execute when the game was on the line. And for me, it was a perfect fit and a perfect perfect place to go to the end of my career. Great description, Trent, talking about uh, folks. The Zen master, of course, Phil Jackson, former Nick and former coach of the uh, Chicago uh, Bulls. Many, many championships for Phil Jackson. Now, post-playing career, Trent, you've you've been broadcasting. Uh, you're in a lot of philanthropic uh, ventures. Tell us about what you're up to. Well, when I when I left the game after after '93, the first year, I kind of wanted to just you know take it easy, sit back, heal my heal my mind and body, and then figure out what was next. I was mm-hmm. fortunate enough to fall into the broadcasting role with the Minnesota Timberwolves. In 1995 was the first year they drafted Kevin Garnett. So I spent five years as a broadcaster with Kevin Garnett. After that, I went into the into the non-profit world, working with middle school kids and promoting early college awareness and giving them a, a sense of hope that if they are willing to, to change the way they think and how they see things, their future could be, could be brighter. So I spent 20-plus years in the philanthropic world, and I decided that I had enough. And then I I found my, my wife, and then we decided to have kids. I had kids later in life, and now I have two boys who are 13 and 14. And get this, they don't play basketball. They're hockey players. Wow. So, <laughs> so, 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 I, I, find, so I, I find myself many of nights now in cold ice arena. <laughs> or ice, hockey. Yeah, also, Trent, it's not a cheap sport when you ki- when your kids are playing hockey, no, it's not, is it? <laughs> it's not a cheap sport at all, but, you know, they love the game. And it's, it's, it's a game now that I'm learning as well. I see a lot of similarities to basketball. You know, me and, me and my wife spend a lot of times driving from one arena to the next. And here in the state of Minnesota, that you know, the youth hockey programs are so good. And you find yourself traveling all over the state, and sometimes into Canada and into Canada as well, you know, for hockey tournaments. That's great. Yeah, that that is a, a good sport to get the kids into. It really is. Again, a sport that teaches uh, discipline, uh, self control, and uh, just tremendous sportsmanship. And uh, I have to ask you, Trent, the greatest moment in your career. What would you say that was? I think the greatest moment in my career, I think I would have two. Okay. The day I was drafted, 
and being able and lucky enough to play my last game on the last day of my career and win the NBA championship. Great, great choices, yeah. And uh, how about a moment that not necessarily the greatest, but one you'll never forget? Uh, losing Game 7 to the Boston Celtics in 1984 in the Eastern Conference semifinal. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we we, uh, we had a lot of close calls during that time, Trent, uh, the, the Patrick era. Uh, the best we we uh, had a chance against uh, Olajuwon and and the yeah. the, uh, the Rockets. Uh, I forget what year that was, but uh, that was the yeah. closest the we came. Ninety four. Yeah, 94? yeah, I think it was ninety four, and uh, we we had everything going, but we lost to the yeah. to uh, the Houston Rockets, and what a heartbreak! That was the year that Michael went to play baseball. Yeah, Michael went to play baseball, and he and I. I always say that Michael and I always had something in common. We retired in the same year. Right. You both uh, are tremendous players, and you quit in the same year. That's that's true. Yeah. Well, Trent, it's been a pleasure having you with us tonight. Thanks for taking the time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us back here on Long Island. We use, we uh, Best of luck with the kids in hockey, and all the best to you in the future. All right. Hey, thanks for having me. That's Trent Tucker, folks. Right now, in the last few minutes, folks, we're going to go back, go back and talk about Casey and the bat, and Casey at the bat a little bit. I have to bring up my notes for that. Hang on one second. Do 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 do. I'm really losing it, folks. Let's see. Not there. Here. Okay. Here we go. Uh, again. We will discuss this. I think it uh, it really deserves discussion longer than the 15 minutes that we have uh, left on the program. Um, I, t- I told you about 19, 1888 when it came about, uh, dramatic narrative about a baseball game. Of course, the poem was later populi- popularized in the classic reading of the poem by a gentleman by the name of D. Wolf Hopper. Uh, he did that in many vaudeville performances. And re- really, Casey at the Bat has become one of the best-known poems in American literature. And for those unfamiliar, it's a baseball team from really the, the fictional town of Mudville. They're the home team. They're losing by two in the last inning. Both the team and the fans, a crowd of about 5,000, believe they can win. If Casey, the slugger from Mudville, their star player, gets to bat. However, Casey is scheduled to be the fifth batter of the inning. And the first two batters, uh, I think it's Cooney and Barrows, fail to get on base. The next two batters, uh, Flynn and Jimmy Blake, are perceived to be uh, really weak hitters with little chance of reaching base to allow Casey a chance to get up at the plate. Well, surprisingly, Flynn hits a single, and Blake follows with a double that allows Flynn to reach third base. Flynn a hug in third. Both runners are now in scoring position, and of course Casey represents the potential winning run 
And Casey is very arrogant, very sure of himself, sure of his abilities that he does not swing at the first two pitches, which are both called strikes by the umpire. On the last pitch, the overconfident Casey, he strikes out swinging. It ends the game, sending the crowd home unhappy. And it's, it's quite a dramatic piece. And uh, I'll read it sometime when we have uh, more time than we do. But I guess that's going to be it for me, Brian. Uh, I thank you guys. Thank you for tuning in tonight to our guests. I'd like to thank our guests, uh, Larry Zonka and Trent Tucker, my engineer, of course, Brian Graves, and, of course, you guys for joining us. We will see you again on February 18th. I will try to be uh, more at the top of my game then. Until then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue, wishing you a good evening, folks. <laughs>